Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, Paul's epistle to Titus, I'm sorry, chapter 2, if you would. Uh, Titus chapter 2, we'll read together verses 1 through 10 for our exposition of God's Word this morning. Uh, I'm going to do something a little unusual while you turn there, uh, something I don't think I've done in uh, worship service before, and that is actually promote a book. Uh, we recently received about 20 copies of Dane Ortland's new book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, and um, I don't know what greater commendation I can give it than to say it's simply one of the best books I've ever read. And it would be wonderful, I think, if everyone in this church read this book. It's suitable for young, for old, for those who are uh, mature in the faith, new in the faith. I know um, at least 10 or 12 of us have already read this book, and I thought of actually asking folks to give their endorsement of it for me to read to you. I'll just read from the back of the book. Uh, Mark Dever says it's one of the best books he's ever read. Uh, Michael Horton says, Dane Ortland leads us into the very heart of God incarnate. Uh, Paul Tripp says, I have read no book that more carefully and tenderly displays Christ's heart. And I love this from Michael Reeves. For any feeling bruised, weary, or empty, uh, this is the balm for you. Uh, So we have copies available in the back. Feel free to go by the bookstore today and pick up a copy. And if you don't have a copy, the elders would like to buy one for you. Um, Wonderful book. Uh, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Uh, hopefully now you're in Titus chapter 2. We'll read together verses 1 through 10. Please follow along as I read. Paul writes to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teachings show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that in these moments, as we come before your word, you would assist us in the understanding of it and the application of it. We pray what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not you would make us by the power of your spirit through your word. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I imagine many here, uh, maybe everyone here, uh, is familiar with uh, Charles Schultz's classic Peanuts cartoon, uh, which features uh, the very lovable, though sometimes pathetic, main character, uh, Charlie Brown. Uh, In one such cartoon, you know, they used to be printed in newspapers, which children's newspapers was a paper that would arrive at your door every day, and you would open it up, and it would have the news in it. Uh, Not sure anyone gets the paper anymore. But in one such cartoon, the kind you'd find in the regular comic strip, Uh, Lucy, that's one of Charlie Brown's friends, she's the girl with the football who always pulls it away at the last minute. 
Uh, Lucy stares outside her window at a torrential downpour, just raining hard outside, and Lucy's there looking glum, staring out the window. She says, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And then Linus, her brother, who's there with her, says it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. Lucy smiles, and she says, you've taken a great load off my mind. Linus responds, sound theology has a way of doing that. Uh, What do you think? What comes to your mind when I mention sound doctrine or sound theology? Uh, Is it something uninteresting, uh, something dry, something maybe a little cerebral, or even uh, perhaps passé? To Paul, uh, it's one of the sweetest things in the world, and as far as he's concerned, all of our life, all of our practice, all of our experience flows out of sound doctrine. So Paul says to Titus in verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul tells Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Uh, When we considered uh, Titus chapter 1 and verse 1, there Paul spoke about his calling as an apostle. He said that he was called as an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. Like one of the reasons Paul was born, one of the reasons he was called to be an apostle is for the knowledge of God's people, the elect, that accords with godliness. Which, which I think is, is knowledge, knowledge of the truth, that leads to godliness, that accords with godliness of life. So there's teaching we learn in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, that apparently accords with sound doctrine. So here's sound doctrine over here, of the sorts of things we confess, like in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and Heidelberg Catechism, question 1. And then there's this teaching that is in accord with that doctrine. Uh, And in Titus 2 and Titus 3, the final two chapters of the book, uh, that teaching we learn has to do with what could be called uh, Christian ethics, or basically the Christian life. Uh, How do we live the Christian life? What's the Christian life supposed to look like in the home and in the family, in the church and in the world and in society at large? How are we to live as Christians? And Paul, I believe, is exhorting Titus here to, to teach that in accordance with sound doctrine. So the doctrines we believe should produce in us uh, a certain lifestyle, certain habits of life, certain character traits, uh, certain, certain attitudes that regulate the way in which we go about our uh, day-to-day lives. And this is the burden that Paul wants to bring to Titus. He is intimately concerned about how Christians live their lives and particularly how they live, in this context, in a Cretan society. Uh, Paul has just spoken, if you were here last week, chapter 1, verse 10 through 16. Uh, He's spoken of the Cretan culture in those days. That's where Titus was stationed. Uh, Particularly the false teachers in Crete. Uh, He described them and the surrounding culture as those who were always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. But now in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes to Titus, but as for you, 
So look, those things are true of the false teachers. It's true of the Cretan culture. But as for you, Titus, and actually that phrase, but as for you in the original Greek, it appears five times in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, Paul uh, seeks to emphasize by that little phrase, but as for you, that Titus and Timothy and the Christians who followed their leadership were to live differently from the world. And in a sense, that's what the rest of the book of Titus is about, living as a Christian in a Cretan context. And we should just recognize the obvious. According to God's Spirit, who inspired the Apostle Paul to write these things, how we live as Christian people matters. Uh, So much of the New Testament is written not only to introduce people to Jesus, introduce people to the gospel so that they could be saved, but to inform them how they go from the gospel or within the gospel to live the Christian life. And so I want us to hear this morning Paul speaking to us, uh, telling each one of us, Christian, how you live matters to God. How you go about your days, how you conduct yourself in your family, in your workplace, in the life of the church, in the surrounding culture, how you live matters. And the focus is first, in chapter 2, on the various members of the Christian household or the Christian community. Uh, Paul's words here in Titus 2, the verses I read in 1 through 10, they're sort of in keeping, they sort of mirror um, what, what were called household codes in those days, which would be kind of lists of virtues or patterns of conduct that should govern each particular demographic in the home or something like that. And, and Paul is not as exhaustive here as he is in other places like the book of Ephesians, for example, or First Peter, uh, where Peter writes about some co- Christian household codes. Uh, but in this passage, Paul is concerned to speak to various demographics in the Christian community, particularly uh, older men, and then he addresses older women and younger women, and then younger men, and then uh, bondservants. Now, this passage is descriptive of what Christians are supposed to look like in the context of everyday life. And so I'll be opening up verses 1 through 10 over the next two weeks, but it's very important that here at the front end of these two messages uh, that you appreciate that what Paul says is not kind of mere legalism or something like that as he tells us how we're to live. Everything Paul is going to call these Christians to in Crete and call us to in Winston-Salem is grounded in the gospel itself. And you won't necessarily see that in verses 1 through 10. So you've got to look on at verse 11. So Paul says to older men, younger men, older women, younger women, bondservants, do these things, live this way. Verse 11, for, he's going to ground it now in the gospel, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In other words, because you were saved. The grace of God came to you. It brought you salvation. What does the grace of God also do? Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, that's the gospel, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You have to get the order right. Uh, It's gospel first, grace first, 
Regeneration first. And out of that transformation, out of the new birth, out of the grace of God that comes and saves us and redeems us from all lawlessness, then comes this new life. And if you're trying to pursue this new life and these virtues and these uh, codes of character or something like that, apart from the grace of God, you're just going to be butting up your head against a brick wall. It's just a dead end. But, 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 but you see, we, we live this way. We adopt this character. We grow in godliness from the cross, uh, from the grace of God, out of the resources that God's grace itself supplies. So I just want to say that on the front end. Uh, as I call, especially today, older men and younger men to live in accord with Paul's instructions here, this isn't going to be like, like legalism, like just, just outward behavior modification. This is speaking to those, hopefully, who have been won by the grace of the Lord Jesus, have been saved by His blood, and have been transformed by the new birth. And from that posture, these ethical principles come to us. So today we're talking about men, older men and younger men. So we're looking primarily at verse 2 and then verse 6. Also, verses 7 and 8 is I think Titus is called to be an example to the younger men. Uh, But primarily verses 2 and 6. Next week, God willing, uh, we're going to talk about women verses 3 through 5, and the the radical vision uh, for godly femininity that is held forth to us in those verses. But I want to encourage our sisters here this morning, young and old, don't check out, okay? And don't expect, by the way, that this is going to be the sort of sermon where I'm just going to gang up on all the fellas in the room, okay? Uh, That's not what Paul would want. That's not what he's doing in this passage. So if you were expecting a rah-rah beat up on, on the guys here, that's not the sermon this morning. But sisters, I don't want you to check out. We need you in on this time uh, for at least a few reasons. Uh, first of all, some of you are called to marry Titus two men. Uh, some of you, secondly, are called to help your husbands become Titus two men. Uh, they need you to help them realize the vision of this passage. Uh, some of you, ladies, are called to raise Titus two men. I recognize that's not every sister's calling here, but God being your helper, those of you who have sons, you're called to raise Titus II men. And if you're not married, not a mom, you're still included. All of you are called to pray for and encourage the men of the church toward this Titus II vision. We're a family of God's people. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. We're all in this sinful mess together, and if we're going to make it to heaven, we're going to do it together. And sisters, we need you in this. Uh, You have a stake in our well-being as your brothers, and we want your prayers, we want your help, we want your encouragements, we want your support, and we want you to help us be Titus II men to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need you sisters in this. Don't check out. This is for you too. All right, let's consider two basic headings, older men and then younger men. Let's look first at the older men, Titus 2, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, you may be wondering um, whether or not you're an older man by this text reckoning. Uh, I have some bad news for you. Uh, If you have to ask the question, you're probably an older man. Uh, It actually isn't entirely clear who would be considered the, quote, older men. I don't think we should think just of the aged 
Uh, it was unusual for people to actually live to be aged like we think the Apostle John was, living in your 80s or 90s. That would have been exceedingly rare in those days. Uh, when you factor out infant mortality, the life expectancy for men in those days we think was probably around the early to mid-50s. Uh, so those would be kind of the, the oldest sort of men uh, in those communities predominantly. Uh, so we could speculate that the older men were uh, obviously past their 20s and probably past their 30s, and I'm assuming most of them would probably be past the years of, of raising young children. So they're either close or into that empty nester uh, sort, of, uh, sort of phase. Uh, in verse 2, Paul lists four main characteristics that should mark the older men. Uh, three first, and then the fourth is qualified in three ways. Sound is the fourth characteristic. Uh, he lists these characteristics. There may be many other virtues that older Christian men should possess, but these are the ones Paul chooses to emphasize in this particular context. And I'll summarize Paul's words to older men with two basic ideas. What is Paul requiring of these older men uh, in verse 2? I think we can place them all into two main categories. Number one is maturity of character, and number two is spiritual vitality. Paul is instructing the older men to possess maturity of character and spiritual vitality. So first of all, maturity of character, and I'm putting the first three characteristics under, under that uh, heading. Together, I think they provide us a picture of a uh, spiritually mature man. Uh, first of all, Paul says the older man is to be sober-minded. It's to be sober-minded, uh, a, a word that should probably re-enter uh, the canon of our vocabulary. It's a wonderful word. Uh, it could be translated in other uh, English translations, temperate, and it can most narrowly refer to being sober, like with respect to alcohol, so he's not a drunk. Uh, that would be the most narrow understanding of the term, but here Paul probably means the more broad uh, understanding of that word. I mean, certainly he's to be temperate with respect to alcohol, but more than that, he's to be a, a sober man generally. Uh, that is to say, he's a clear-headed man. He sees reality clearly. He's possessed with wisdom and discernment and good judgment. This man is sober-minded. It would be the opposite of being rash, foolish, impulsive, lacking in self-control. You get the idea uh, that experience has contributed to this sort of sobriety that this older man uh, possesses. Well, secondly, Paul says the man is to be dignified. Uh, he's to be sober-minded, uh, clear-headed, sees the world clearly, good judgment, good wisdom, and he's to be dignified. Now, don't think that means he's supposed to be just kind of gentlemanly or like refined in his manner or something like that. Nothing wrong with being gentlemanly. But that's not so much the idea here. To be dignified means to be worthy of honor, uh, to be respectable. Uh, there's a seriousness and a, a weight and a gravity about the man. He's not frivolous or glib. He's not a fool. Uh, he's dignified. He commands the respects of others uh, by his whole carriage, by his deportment, by his character and his conduct and his speech. He's a respectable, honorable dignified kind of man. And then the third uh, uh, descriptor Paul gives of this mature character is that he's to be self-controlled. Now, I'm going to pass over this for a minute because this is actually the only thing Paul uh, highlights for the younger men in Titus 2 verse 6. I, I'll, I'll say more when we get to that second point of the younger men. 
Just note here at this point, the older men too are to think a lot about self-control. So if you're an older man, you think, I should be sober-minded, I should be dignified, and I too should be thinking about self-control and seeking to possess this virtue. More on that when we get to the younger men. So that's something of the maturity of character, I'm calling it. Sober-mindedness, he's dignified, worthy of honor and respect, he's a serious man, and he's self-controlled. Now, the second heading under that first main heading, spiritual vitality. He's to have maturity of character, he's to possess spiritual vitality. The second half of verse 2 says he's to be sound, or we could say healthy. Sound, and then he qualifies that word in three ways. He's to be sound, particularly in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. In other words, we could say that Paul is essentially calling on the older men to be spiritually vital, spiritually sound, spiritually healthy, to abound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Like I said, to be sound is to be healthy. It's to be stable. It's to be secure. It's to be in good and proper condition. If I were to speak of a a car, if I were, say, selling a car to you, for example, and I said the car is, is mechanically sound. What am I saying? It's in good working condition. Uh, no known defects. It's running well. It's a, it's a healthy car. It's in proper working uh, order. If I were to say an argument is sound, I'm saying it's logical. It's coherent. It doesn't have any obvious flaws or holes. It's well-reasoned. It's sound. So the older men are to be sound. That is healthy, stable, in good condition in three main areas, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, I think this list of three qualities uh, essentially mirrors that basic trio that we see in Paul's writings elsewhere. Paul often speaks of faith, hope, and love. Here in Titus 2.2, he's saying uh, faith, love, and steadfastness. I think steadfastness is more or less connected to hope. That is the steadfastness that's born out of Christian hope. Hope leads to steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. I think that's very much the idea here. Uh, So first, the older men are to be sound in faith. Uh, That is to say of this older man, his faith is sound, healthy, mature, in good condition. Uh, He knows what he believes. He knows the truth, and he is firmly committed to the truth. Uh, But not only that, he has, through some years of walking with the Lord, developed a vital and healthy experimental faith. That is, he knows from experience what it is to rest in Jesus, uh, to trust in Jesus through trial, through struggles, through life. You don't wonder of this older man if he is really holding fast to Christ. He has a sound and seasoned faith, and his roots go deep into God, and he is not easily moved. He's sound in faith. Uh, Second, we read he's sound in love. Now, what would that mean for an older man to be sound in love? At the least, it would mean that he has come to appreciate the foundational importance of Christian love in all of its varied expressions, that he himself abounds in love toward God, toward his brothers and sisters in Christ, and toward his neighbors in the world. This man is a loving man. And his heart is not bound up in loving the things of the world, but his heart is bound up in loving Christ and his church. He's sound in love. Uh, Probably the emphasis, though, 
is particularly on loving brothers and sisters in Christ. He should love God. He should love his lost neighbors. But the emphasis is probably like the emphasis we see with Christian love in so many of Paul's epistles, and that is loving one another in the church. This man is known as a loving man. He loves the church of Jesus Christ. He loves his brothers and his sisters. His love goes wide, it's broad, it encompasses every type of person in the life of the church, not just his little clique, the guys he gets together with on the golf course or at breakfast on Thursday mornings. Uh, This man loves the people of God, abounds in love toward Christ's people. And then thirdly, we read he's sound in steadfastness, another word that we should use uh, more often. He sound in steadfastness, like in endurance, in perseverance in the faith. This older man has proven himself faithful in the face of challenges, trials, and setbacks. This man has a track record of following hard after Christ and persevering. Uh, He's not turning back, and he's proven that. He's not easily swayed. He's not wishy-washy. He's a man who is steadfastly committed to the things of God, steadfastly committed to following Christ, steadfastly committed to his bride at the church. This older man ain't going anywhere. He knows whom he believes. He's steadfastly committed to the Lord. That's something of the portrait Paul gives of these faithful older men. They possess maturity of character, that is, uh, they're sober-minded, they're self-controlled. He says they're also spiritually vital, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, before leaving the older men, I just want to make three observations or give three sort of encouragements, okay? Three observations slash encouragements. Number one, you don't become uh, this kind of older man overnight. You don't become this kind of man overnight. And this sort of maturity and spiritual vitality doesn't belong to older men as a sort of reward of old age. This sort of character and this sort of spiritual vitality is developed over years of walking with Christ. This is the fruit of years spent following hard after God and living in His Word and ministering in His church. And it's, it's sad, I mean, it's just a reality that not every Christian older man is, is like this. But the reality is every Christian older man can be like this. Uh, this is not impossible, my older brothers. Paul would not write this. The Holy Spirit of God would not inspire these words if this sort of character, this sort of spiritual vitality weren't possible for old men to possess. And to the older men here, let me just say this to you. Uh, To actually realize this vision, this vision of godliness of character and of spiritual vitality, uh, you really do have to swim against the cultural current. Uh, This Uh, flies in the face. It goes against the grain of everything uh, the culture tells you. Uh, Old age, if you're just listening to marketing, okay, watching commercials, reading things online that are marketed to older men, you would conclude that old age is where you get to slack off, uh, coast, and just have as good a time as possible. Uh, The vision of the good life held out today to older men is nothing short of hedonism, Uh, Kids, do you know what hedonism is? You ever heard that word? To be a hedonist is to live for your own personal pleasure. That's the most important thing in the world, to live for pleasure. That's what it means to be a hedonist. 
And to the older men in the room, the world is trying to persuade older men here that in their old age, that's the reason they live, to coast, to slack off, to enjoy lots of days in the sunshine and on the beach and at the golf course because, man, you earned it. Uh, you worked hard. And isn't it interesting? Um, you work in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and then you retire, and, 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 and the vision that's held out is like a reversion back to youth, uh, where uh, young people are, are often kind of foolish, and they do dumb things, and they live for themselves and for self-indulgence, and that's like the best thing old men could possibly want, uh, to live for pleasure. Brothers, if you're going to realize this vision that Paul is holding out to you, you've got to go against the grain. Uh, this picture of of the man who is serious and sober-minded and dignified and worthy of honor and self-controlled and sound and faith, hope, and love. It's not a man who's just wasting away. It's a man who has never been more spiritually alert, a man who's spiritually sharp and vibrant, serving Christ with everything he has. A second comment about this verse, uh, the healthiest churches in the world have these older men in abundance. These older men in healthy churches, they're like oak trees uh, that grow up in the midst of the church. They're not like little flimsy crepe myrtle trees that snap and topple over. They're like oaks. They stand. They're strong. They've got deep roots. They've got big, long branches, lots of shade. Uh, we, as a matter of fact, had three crepe myrtle trees here a few months ago. We moved them because they snap and they break whenever water or ice is on them and they smell really bad, but the oak trees weren't going anywhere. So that's kind of an illustration you can have in your minds, men, when you come in Sunday morning. I want to be an oak, not like the crepe myrtles they threw out of here, okay? You have roots that go deep down into God. And there are young men, young women, people in the church who, who sort of sit and take comfort and shelter under the shade of these older men. There were many things in God's providence that contributed to the success and the health of this local church. We were originally a very fragile, flimsy, little, small church plant. And the main reason we're here today and the church has survived and grown and has um, been fruitful uh, is because Christ, by His Holy Spirit, made us into one of His churches and has superintended every step of the way to care for this body because we belong to Him. But Christ, the sovereign Christ, uses means. And one of the means I'm convinced Christ used to bring this church into existence and to sustain this church uh, is, is, is because in the beginning of this church's life and all throughout, there were men among us who were not in their 20s or in their 30s. The Lord was pleased to give us older men who invested in this church body contributed to the maturity and the health of this church body and still contribute to the maturity and health of this body to this day. And I'll just say to the younger men here, I'm thinking teenagers, guys in their 20s, guys in their 30s, and guys like me. Okay, to the younger men here, we have a wealth, a plethora. We have treasures of older men in this church who, praise God, are sober-minded, dignified and self-controlled and sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And my younger brother, I say this to you, I say this to myself, you would be a fool if you didn't pursue these men. 
If you didn't try to draw on their wisdom and experience and take shelter under the shade that these oaks provide in our midst. They're God's gifts to you and they're God's gifts to this church. And it is a peculiar expression of God's kindness to this body that he has staffed this church with such men. A third comment and then we'll move on to the younger men. Third comment. Some of you older men, either here or watching online, may hear me talking about this verse, and in all candor you think, that's not me. As I look at this description of the Titus II older man, that's not a description of me if I'm being honest, and you feel discouraged, maybe even somewhat ashamed that you're not the man you want to be. You so wish this was a description of you, but if you're honest, it's just not, and you feel like a failure. Okay, my brother, here's what you need to do. Three steps. Number one, look your sin and failure in the face, and with no excuses, no notion of self-pity, call it what it is. I've not lived in the first half of my life as I ought to have lived. Just look it in the face and say that. Say it to the Lord. Say it openly to Him. No excuses. Step two, go to Jesus Christ, who's gentle and lowly in heart, and just confess your sin to him. Just tell him, I'm not the man I should have been, and experience the grace and forgiveness that he's ready to give to sinners and failures like all of us. So so, so look it in the face, brother, call it what it is, then go to Jesus and find grace and help and forgiveness in him, and then don't leave out this third step. Recommit yourself in the fourth quarter of your life to following hard after Jesus Christ with everything you've got. So many men, this would be true of older women as well, they have lots of regrets, and they look back on the first 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, and man, they're ashamed, and they're discouraged, and they feel like failures, and, and, and they become depressed and discouraged, and it keeps them from becoming, in the final 10 or 20 or 30 years, all that God would have for them. But true repentance bears fruits of repentance, and my brother, there's no reason why the final decade, final 20 years, 30 years, can't be your best years in service to Christ. Look it in the face, go to Jesus and find forgiveness and grace in Him, and then recommit yourself to following hard after Christ. COVID-19 took so much away from me. If we're having like a pity party and we want to try to one-up each other with our grief, and like who, who had it worse with the whole pandemic, I got to be in the top five in the room at least. At least that's how I feel, okay? Uh, but, but, but COVID did give me one nice gift. Everything's shut down, everything's closed. We got nothing to do, nowhere to go. But for some strange reason, golf courses were open. And so, I figured I might as well try this out. Try to pick this out. A couple of brothers took me out. And uh, I got to say, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, it's kind of a new hobby I'm trying to pick up. And um, I'm a terrible golfer. It's very humbling. It's a little embarrassing. There are certain brothers I try not to play in front of because I think they'll never really respect me as a pastor again if they see my golf game. On the golf course, you have 18 holes, okay, ordinarily. They call the first nine the front nine. The second nine is the back nine. So if someone says, I'm going to play the back nine, they're going to go play the last nine holes out of 18 on the golf course. Most golfers, at least that 
I've played with, that I can tell, play their best golf on the front nine, and then they play their worst on the back nine. I'm a terrible golfer, but I'm unusual in this degree that I play my worst golf definitely on the front nine, and then I make kind of adjustments and improvements and play much better on the back nine. Older brothers, if you look at the front nine of your life, and you're thinking it wasn't what it should be, I played some lousy golf. I adopted all kinds of bad habits. I wasn't disciplined. I wasn't, I wasn't at my best. There's no reason why the back nine can't be your best golf yet, can't be your best service to Christ, and there's no reason why the 18th hole can't be your very best hole. You should ask God in those moments right before my death, I want to be as, as vital and sound in godliness, in faith, in hope, and in love. I want to be walking closer to Christ than at any point in my life. And there is no reason why for any man in this room that cannot be your inheritance when you get to your dying day. So, older brothers, I encourage you, commit that I'm going to live for Christ by His grace with greater zeal, with greater faith that, that He Himself supplies than I have at any point in my life. That's the older men, verse 2. Now I want to talk to the younger men. The younger men, heading number two. And younger men, it's not clear exactly who would be considered younger men. Certainly teenagers would certainly include guys in their 20s, maybe probably even guys in their 30s. Paul says in verse 6, Likewise, you, Titus, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, period. That's all he says. There's a lot more to say to older men, a lot more to say to older women, a lot more to say to younger women, a lot more to say to bond servants. Uh, but surprisingly, this is all he has to say to the younger men. I don't know if you've noticed this in reading Titus. I didn't until, honestly, the last few weeks when I've been studying this book. Uh, to be self-controlled, it's like Paul is fixated on this. He tells the elders in chapter 1, verse 8, elders are to be self-controlled. You notice for older men, chapter 2, verse 2, older men are to be self-controlled. In verses 3 through 5, older women are to train younger women how to be self-controlled. Likewise, tell the younger men to be self-controlled. And then you get down to chapter 2, verse 12, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, God willing. It says the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age. So let me just ask, uh, when's the last time you, brother or sister, have thought about this virtue? When's the last time you prayed and asked God to help you to grow in self-control? Now, what is self-control? I think we all know what we mean when we refer to self-control, but let me provide a, a working definition since this word comes up so much in Titus. Here's my stab at a working definition for self-control. Self-control is the discipline of governing one's thoughts, words, and actions, as well as one's appetites and impulses, in submission to God and His Word, and independence on the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll read that again. Self-control is the discipline of governing one's thoughts, words, and actions, as well as one's appetites and impulses, 
in submission to God and His Word and in dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, why should this issue get so much attention from Paul in his letter to Titus? And why is he on about this so much? I can offer two suggestions, and they're only suggestions. Number one, this is actually one of the most highly commended virtues in all of the New Testament. Now that I put this on your radar, when you read the New Testament, you're going to see it pop up everywhere. Whether it's Jesus calling us to self-control in the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is self-control, you're going to see it pop up in a number of places. But a second suggestion I would give for why Paul is so passionate about self-control in this letter to Titus is that nothing would have been more countercultural. Now, Crete was an island marked by self-indulgence and sin. These are the evil beasts and the lazy gluttons, Paul describes in verse 12. Sounds to me like an entire culture that has thrown off any notion of self-control. And I'll just say this, uh, that in this respect, I think Cretan culture is like our culture, where our culture mirrors Cretan culture. Uh, We live, more than at any time in American history, uh, we live in the age of self, uh, the material self, the therapeutic self, the hypersexualized self. We live in the age of self. Remember, um, is it Terrell Owens, controversial wide receiver? What did he say? I love me some me. That was his tagline. We live in the age of self. So this issue of self-control is significant in the New Testament. It's prominent in Titus. And here, it is the one thing required of young men, which might lead us to ask, why this one thing? Of all the things Paul could have drawn attention to, this is what he zeroes in on. Now, I suspect Paul is uh, uh, isolating this one issue in part to make a point. He wants these young men to give their attention to this issue especially, uh, so he's not even going to talk about anything else. There's lots of other things he could talk about. This isn't saying that young men don't have to give attention to any other virtues, but this is the thing he zeroes in on because this would have been for them the area that needed special attention. Now, why does Paul see it that way? I don't know for certain, but again, I'd suggest two reasons. Number one, young men especially struggle with self-control. Just a fact, young men in a myriad of ways struggle with self-control. And number two, the extreme pressures, temptations, and challenges presented by the surrounding Cretan culture called for the young men to exercise biblical self-control with a heightened sense of urgency. And again, in this sense, I think our culture mirrors the Cretan culture. Over the past 10 years, I've had a a sobering number of conversations with moms and dads who are very concerned about how to faithfully raise young men in our present cultural climate. The, The world's posture toward young men can be described with one word. It's predatory. It's predatory. I'm tempted to say it's never been harder to be a young man. But I think the Cretans would have understood our situation. Maybe it's true that it's never been harder to be a self-controlled young man in American history. Maybe we can agree 
to that. Moms, dads, young men, the world in this respect is not your friend. It is the prevailing philosophy in our age that the surest way to realize yourself and and to be most faithful to who you are in your identity is to live most in accord with your impulses and appetites. That is the foundation of the LGBTQIA movement. And they are doing a fabulous job of advancing that perspective. That in order to be truly yourself, like if you want to be who you are in your identity, if you want to be honest and true and faithful to who you are, the surest way to do that is act out in accord with your passions, your appetites, and your impulses. And to actually suppress those things and to deny those things and to seek to control yourself is to deny who you really are, like ontologically, like in your being. Young people, that is such a lie. That, that is not the way to the good life. That's not what God has designed for human flourishing. You want to realize who you are and who you're meant to be in the truest, like deepest, most real sense? Come to Jesus Christ and He will save you from your sins. He'll make you new and He'll take you to glory where you'll live as you were meant to live. But you are not going to find that you're going to really realize who you are. You're going to live as you were meant to be. You're going to spread wings and fly if you just do whatever your genetics tell you to do. Now, I could say more about this, but in a mixed group like this, maybe I should curtail my comments, but some of you can, can go in your minds logically to where that philosophy leads. It actually will lead to utter anarchy. It actually will lead to the destruction of human lives. If you play out that logic, do whatever comes naturally to you. And if you have a natural impulse in your heart and you try to control that and bring that into submission to Christ, you're denying your identity. Play that out to where it goes. Play out that logic. Young people, you're being taught a lie. Don't believe it. Don't embrace it. Human flourishing and the good life is laid out for us in the Scriptures. And one of the qualities of a godly young person is he tries to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age, and he does so by the grace that God supplies. You know the Lady Gaga song, Born This Way? And that's like the anthem of this movement. You know, she's kind of right. Of course you're born this way. Of course people involved in all sorts of measures of perversion are born this way. The message of the gospel is you can be born again. You can be born anew. And you can live and you can walk in this present age as you were meant to live. Young men, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that it's this way. And we could wish it was different. But listen, to the young Christian men here, whether you're a teenager, you're in 20s, your 30s, whatever, I promise you, this call from Christ through the Apostle Paul would not be in the Bible if it weren't possible by God's grace. 
you can be self-controlled. You can be self-controlled. If you are in Christ, you've been born again, you can be self-controlled. God's not going to lie to you. God's not going to present a, a burden to you that you can't bear. God is telling you how to flourish and how to live. And it is as one who is self-controlled. 1 John 4, 4 says, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I got miles away from my sermon. Let me just say this in closing. Um, There's more I would wish to say about self-control. Maybe your mind goes to one particular area where young men need to be self-controlled. There's many. Young men need to be self-controlled with respect to time. They need to be self-controlled with respect to work. They need to be self-controlled with respect to uh, the family. They need to be self-controlled with respect to sexual temptation. They need to be self-controlled with respect to all kinds of things. Particularly on the issue of sexual purity, uh, we as elders had planned before the pandemic to have a special couple of classes or seminars on that particular subject, particularly addressing the subject of pornography. And then the pandemic happened and that derailed our plans, but, but we're still planning to have that seminar at some point. I don't think it would be best for me to talk about all of this now in a mixed context like this. Uh, that meeting, whenever we have it, it's not going to be a Sunday morning service, it'll be a class or an evening thing. That can be a more self-selecting gathering. Parents, you could choose if you want to bring your young men and your, your, your young, young women. But that is coming. And at that time, we'll, we'll talk more about what this looks like and help to provide resources and grace and encouragement for how to live self-controlled lives in the present age, particularly with respect to that issue. But in closing, I just want to say this. It was exactly what I said to the older men a little bit ago earlier in the message. Young men, if you have not lived a self-controlled life, do what I encourage the older brothers to do. Call it what it is. Look it in the face. I've not lived a self-controlled life, whether it's respect to sexual sin or laziness or the way I've used my speech or the way I've conducted myself in class or online or at work. I've not been self-controlled. Look it in the face, call it what it is. Go to Jesus and repent and find grace and help in Him. He'll cleanse you of every stain of sin and He'll do it again and again and again and again. And then thirdly, God being your helper through the grace that Christ supplies, commit yourself. This this is possible. This is doable. God wants me to live a self-controlled life. Go to God and ask Him, help me now to grow in this. Find a brother in the church to come alongside you and to help you grow in this. We all need each other on the way to heaven. We're all in this sinful mess together. We want to be self-controlled. We want to be godly. We want to honor God with our lives. There are brothers here ready to help you. There are pastors here ready to help you. But brothers, you can do this by the grace that Christ supplies. Don't forget this. Gospel first. Godliness next that comes out of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you think, I'm really going to try very hard to be a Titus 2 older man or I'm going to try really hard to be a Titus 2 6 younger man, 
That's a dead end, my brother. You could try all you want, but it's not going to get you to heaven. And you will not actually possess what you're after. What you need to do is something far more initial. You need to come to Jesus Christ. And you need to say, Lord, would you make me new? Would you save me from my sins? I confess them freely to you, and I want to be a new creature in Christ Jesus. And by your grace, I I want to flourish and live as I was meant to live. Teach me what it is to follow after Jesus. Teach me what it is to be the man that God has called me to be. Listen, the rest of us here in this room who are believers, who are in Christ, we're having to do that every day. Coming back to Jesus again and again and again. Would some here do that for the first time and find new life in Him? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, if there's been anything conveyed this morning that's unhelpful or not in accord with your word, we pray that you would remove it from our minds now, that only that which is pure, only that which is true, only that which is aligned with your will would remain, and not only remain, Father, May it sink deep down into the soil of our hearts and bear fruit. Lord, we thank you for the work of grace you have done in the lives of so many men here, young and old. Lord, we pray that that grace would continue to operate with power in their lives, that they might grow in godliness and sanctification, leaning on the grace that you supply through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Give to some men here this morning the first taste, the first experience of that grace. And may it also transform them. God, may you help us. This vision for manhood and womanhood that you have laid out for us in your word is truly good. It's truly right. Cause us to embrace it, to believe it, and by your help to realize it more and more, not so that we could earn your favor, but so that we can walk in godliness and experience full joy in your presence and a clear conscience in your presence. And that we also might portray to a watching world a more compelling and beautiful and wonderful witness. Oh God, do this by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.